If this is your first time here, I just want to say welcome and how thankful we are. Um, We've been just beginning a new series over the next few weeks that we're going to look at, where we've been talking about how life um, doesn't always necessarily go to script, that life is something that um, can be messy and broken at times in our lives, and yet the God that we serve is one that doesn't shy away from our brokenness, but actually he embraces it. Did you know that God actually likes to be a part of the places that you deem most unlovable? And in fact, it's the very reasons and the very things in your life that you think, if I ever talked about this to the Lord, if this was ever brought up to people around me, they would never love me. Did you know that that's the actual places that God wants to be in in your life? He not only wants to be there to reassure that he loves you right now. Everybody say right now. Right now, God loves you. But God only, he wants to live in that place and he wants to lead us into redemption and growth in that. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at a variety of topics. We talked about this last week. Um, This morning, we're actually going to be concentrated in looking at sexuality. And so before we get into that, I just want to say, if this is your first time here, I'm sorry. All right. Um, You're like, this is what they talk about at church. And so... um, But at the same time, what I do want to say about that is this, that when it comes to talking about any topic of faith, especially sexuality, no one deserves to come up and talk about that. There is no one that is worthy to come up and say they're the expert on this with what God has, except God himself. And so what I personally recognize, and I just want to say that our leaders recognize, is that we're all broken And we're all on our own journeys with the Lord, including in our sexuality as well. And so we don't want this to be something where we're coming across like we're telling you what to do and that we're perfect because that's not true by any means. In fact, we're here speaking to the grace of God and it's by God's grace that we could ever talk about a subject like this. And can I just get an amen to that? That's going to be important to remember this morning because anytime that you dive into a deep or messy subject like that, It could be a place where you could feel ashamed of yourself. I absolutely don't want anybody walking in here thinking that sex is a bad thing or that you're ashamed because of where you're at. Because that's that's not God's heart for you, as we'll dive into. But no matter where you're at in this room, um, maybe you're someone that's never really talked about sexuality or sex with anyone in your life, never with your parents. Maybe you never had that. Maybe you've never talked about that with anyone around you and you're scared of the subject and you're wishing you weren't here today. But simultaneously, maybe you're in here and you're someone who is having sex. Maybe you're someone who does not have the most godly of relations with another person. Or maybe you're just here and you're like, why do I even need to talk about this? Why does something like this even matter? I can be as sexual as I want. I can handle my life however I want. But I just want to say to you guys that I'm thankful that you're here. And that every perspective is welcome here. Um, and that no matter where you find yourself, all are welcome. I think that's how God's church was meant to be as a place of hospitality. So can I just get an amen to that? Let me pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. God, would you open our eyes and teach us, um, Lord, about what sexuality is and what it means. Lord, we recognize it's something that's from you and something that was meant for good. So, Lord, would you simply teach us in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. So if you're in Genesis chapter 2, if you've never opened a Bible in your life or you don't know what the book of Genesis is, it's a testimony to the beginning of God's story with humanity, 
at this point where we're looking at God has created humanity, but sin has not entered the picture yet. And I would just give you guys a Bible reading tip right now, that when you look at the first couple chapters of the Bible before sin entered the picture, it's really important to look at a lot of the characteristics of what that's like. Because oftentimes, that's a picture of how God wants to relate to us now. That's what God is going for. In fact, it has been said that when God is trying to redeem humanity and bring his kingdom to earth, that he's trying to return us to a place of the garden. Return us to a place of what it was like before sin. Because this is a picture of what the relationship God wants to have in its fullness and goodness looks like. And so we come to this interesting passage um, in the scripture. Look at verse 18 with me. And this is what it says. Speaking of, God has created Adam at this point, the first human. He's created the animals. He's created the world around him. But Adam is the only human at this point. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper suitable, or I will make a helper suitable for him. Suitable helper that's suitable for suitable him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Cool job, bro. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, or as it's translated in its Hebrew, out of his side, a part of who he was, and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from a rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now a bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Can we say amen together? If you had trouble following along in this passage, what's happening is that God recognizes that man was not meant to be alone, which is interesting because life is sinless at this point, and even then, it's not a good idea to be alone, not only when it comes to marriage and things like that, but just relationships in general. And so, goes through the animals, no one is suitable, you know, to be in relationship, and so God puts Adam into a deep sleep, and from his side, which speaks so much um, to women, that God originally intended us to be side by side, that's what the impact of that is, and he creates a woman... And here, in this moment, a naked woman is presented to Adam. And Adam, in this moment, sings, actually. If you don't know what this is right here, this passage is actually a song that he sings. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never been so happy in my life that I've just broke into song. Have you? Amen? No. You're like, I want to have friends at school so I won't break into song. Amen? Now... It must be something very good in that moment in order for him to say, wow, this has blown my mind of what I'm seeing right now. And that's basically, in its original context, Adam said, dang, all right? 
That's what happened in that moment. He saw her and he recognized the beauty and there was sexual attraction in that moment. And what God does is that he joins the song and he says, this is why a man will leave his father and his mother and be united. Say the word united. United to his wife. And it says they will become one flesh. You know, it's funny to read scriptures like this because it's so direct and it's so spelled out in front of you. And I think one of the most simple, beautiful truths about sex is this. God created it. Everybody say God. God was the one who created sex. It was him. Period. The end of the story. No one else created it. No one else was the author. No one else dreamed up what it was supposed to be like. In fact, it was from his imagination. It was from his creativity. It was from his wanting to be good to us and to give us out of his love that he gave that to us. Which is why I would say that people who say God is a downer and doesn't ever want us to do anything fun is wrong. Amen? All right? God was the one who made this and intended and gave this to us. Which I think is funny because when you look at this passage, when it originally introduces sexuality, it doesn't talk about reproduction. Yes, it's intended for that. But in this, what it's talking about is intimacy. It's talking about sharing and unity with one another. It's talking about excitement and joy, peace, even those things that are shared. It's in your DNA, and you have a sexuality. Jesus had a sexuality as well. To be sexual and to have a sexuality is what it means to be human. It's not something that you need to necessarily hide or never talk about or feel awkward about. But in fact, it's, it's something as normal and natural to you as breathing that humans do. You know, back in Jewish traditions, you want to talk about openness? Back in Jewish traditions, um, during the Bible, during weddings, can I tell you how, thank God that this doesn't happen at weddings now, all right? But what they would do is that after they would get married, the bride and the groom, you know how typically at a wedding, the bride and the groom, they'll like go off, they'll sign the documents, they'll take pictures, and you kind of go over to the tables, and you're waiting for them for 20 minutes, you're meeting people and talking, and they're like, oh, where are they? Oh, they're taking pictures. You know what they did during that time, <laughs> during a Jewish wedding? They weren't taking pictures, all right? <laughs> they were having sex, and everyone knew it at that point. And so literally, everyone in the wedding is waiting and knowing that they're sleeping together. Ew. Amen? <laughs> and literally, little Billy, eight-year-old, who's sitting at the table and goes... Mom, Dad, what, what happened to them? And they would turn to them and go, well, they're having sex right now. And they go, what is sex? And from there begins a relationship and a journey of explaining what God has given us. At such an early age as well. Personally, can I tell you what I think? Personally, I think we have an issue in our day and age regarding sexuality and how it relates to our faith in Jesus and how we can often talk about it. It can sometimes come across as this taboo subject that you can't talk about or at least understand that God is in it. I would describe it this way. I heard a pastor who is from California who is speaking to a group of young adults explain it as this way. There's animal and there's angel theology. I'm going to reference this throughout the sermon. Can you all say animal? Animal versus angel theology is this idea of two spectrums that people can often fall into. Animal is this idea that when you look at sex or sexuality... That this is something that is just purely physical. That this is something that you do whatever you want. You do whatever makes you feel good. 
And don't let anybody judge you for what it is because you're physical, you have flesh, and so it doesn't really matter. There is no context. You do it however you want. And oftentimes that could be a worldly perspective. Maybe you see that in culture. Maybe you see that from peer pressure at school. Maybe you hear that from friends. And so that's one perspective. But one of the issues with a perspective like that is that what ends up happening is you begin to use sexuality out of context. And brokenness begins to enter into the picture of your life. Because just because you can do anything you want doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the most healthy thing for you. Did you guys know that there are studies that have been done by the world on people who have chosen to have sex only with the person that they married within the context of marriage versus people who can choose whatever they want? They found significantly that people within the context of marriage were way happier and way more at peace than the people who did whatever they want. It was interesting. I actually had a conversation with a student a long time ago, and wasn't, he wasn't following the Lord in his life. He was actually sleeping around. He was doing whatever he wanted. And he looked at me, and he just said, you know what? I thought I would be happy. And he says, I actually just feel really empty inside, and I don't know why. It's because when you use the things of the Lord out of context, it doesn't leave you at peace Because now you're taking something that the Lord intended, something the Lord created, something the Lord authored, and using it out of context. Now, the other side of it, the angel theology, I would say is just as damaging as the animal side of it. Angel theology is this idea that angels are spirits and they don't have physical bodies. So likewise, someone could look at you and say that sexuality is a bad thing. Someone could look at you, and I would just go as far as to say is maybe you've heard this in church. And if you have heard this, I'm sorry that that's incorrect. Sexuality is something that God made and something that God intended for good. So what ends up happening is you begin to believe these lies that I can never talk about sex. Anytime I bring that up, I'm going to be shamed by my parents or by leaders in my life. And so to never talk about it. Anytime I feel something sexual, there's something wrong with me. I have sinned. And ultimately what you think is God is mad at you for having a sexuality. Do you know that if you're fighting against your sexuality and the fact that, and you deny that you have one, you're like fighting against God. And what ends up happening is people become so ashamed of themselves and the deep things of their heart and their sexuality that they believe that they're unlovable. They believe that God could never love them for sexual feelings that they have. And because of that, they end up pushing themselves away from the Lord. So what you have is you have these two interesting extremes and dynamics that can bring equally as much shame and pain and brokenness. Go ahead and do whatever you want, but that leads to brokenness. Deny that you have a sexuality altogether. Don't address it. That's the, that's the unforgivable sin. That's the sin that's worse than any other one. And in your heart you think, well, then something's wrong with me because I'm having all these sexual feelings and I don't know what to do. I feel this way. I don't know what's going on. And you shame yourself equally in that way. But God is someone who not only created, say the word create, God created it, and God intended it for good. And so ultimately, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, wherever you find yourself in your life, God has a plan for your life, and God has redemption for your life. Amen? See, God created sex to be a good thing, and if God was the one who authored it and created it, he knows how it is supposed to be good for us. And what I mean by that is this, that you have a sexuality right now and God wants you to use it in a healthy manner right now in your lives. 
It's not just something that says, well, I'll wait till I'm older and then I'll start talking about it. No, you have a sexuality now. And God is teaching you how to steward it well in a healthy way that will be a blessing to you and your future husband or your future wife. In fact, I would go as far as to describe it like this. This is Fahrenheit 451. Did anyone ever have to read this book in school? Yeah, a lot of you guys had to. I had to read it as well. This is, sorry to bring schoolwork into church, speaking of taboos. That is Ray Bradbury, an old man. He wrote that in 1950, I believe. And so this is a book, if you guys have read it before, um, it's a book about censorship. It's a book about literature. Um, It has some deeper meanings, which is probably why you read it at school about things that you can write in the media or literature. And it's a very controversial book in a sense of what does it mean to censor media and all that. But something to know about Ray Bradbury is that this book became one of the most famous books in all of history. I believe it's in the Literature Hall of Fame, um, as well as it's sold over 10 million copies worldwide, um, including this Spanish translation that I bought. So all that to say, there's an interesting uh, story that occurred a couple years ago. So Ray decided to go to a college because he knew they were reading the book. And he said, I'm going to talk to them about this book and what it means, but I'm not going to tell them that I'm the author. So he's brought in as a guest speaker. He goes in and he begins to talk to them. He's like, well, what did you think about the book? And they say, well, this is what I think the author meant by it. I believe he meant this by it. And he begins to argue, but he doesn't reveal who he is. He says, well, I think the author meant this in this passage and by this chapter. And the debate gets so heated that Ray just decides, you know what? That's it. I'm the author. I wrote it, so I know what it means. And so don't tell me what I'm thinking about it and what I intended this passage for. But you want to know what happened after that? They continued, thank you, Gabe. They continued, they continued to argue against him and told him what he thought and what he wrote and why he wrote it. Ray got so mad that he stormed out of the room and he said, I'm never returning to it. Now, from an outside perspective, From our perspective, it seems pretty dumb of the class to look at an author and tell him what he meant and his heart behind what he wrote. Amen? Amen. But let me ask you a question. If God is truly the author of sexuality and how it's meant to be, don't we put ourselves in the same position when we look at God and say, God, I know how this is supposed to be used. God, I know what's right and I know what's wrong when I look at you. The fact of the matter is, we have an author who loves us and wants us to know and wants us to live in the fullness of what sexuality is, which means that it's our duty to trust him in what he says about that and lead us in that. And so what that actually looks like, we see here in the scripture of what sexuality is. I want to talk about the specific definition of it. And you see it here in verse 20. Do you want to go ahead and put up that slide? Natalie. So I want you to look at something. Verse 22 says, the Lord God made a woman. Then in verse 24, which refers to sex and sexuality, it says, they became one flesh. Now notice something in the text. This is the NIV version. It says, Adam and his wife. So what happened? It was a woman, but then that happens and all of a sudden, no explanation. It's a wife. This is what it's saying by that, is that sex is a matter of bringing people together in unity and that the very act of sex made her 
a wife to Adam, and Adam, her husband. Sex is a gift from God for married couples, and it's meant for unity. You see, if you ask the question, well, what does it say in the Bible about sex outside of marriage? You know, it doesn't really say much, because the fact of the matter is, when sex is referenced in the Bible, it's usually a reference to marriage as well. Because in God's picture for sexuality, there is no difference that when you commit this area sexually to someone, that you're committing everything. That's why in the passage it would say, you are united and you become one flesh. In fact, in another passage it says, Adam knew his wife, and the actual Greek for that is yada, which means you don't just know information about your wife. It's like you know everything about them. You know their emotional side. You know what makes them tick. It's like you're the same person as them. In fact, that same word is used to describe how God wants to know us. He doesn't just want to know information. He wants to know us inside and out. And so all that to say, there's no separation between marrying someone and sleeping with them because you can only sleep with someone that you've committed your whole life to. That's why oftentimes questions that I get from students or from people that I know where they say, well, why is sleeping together or wrong before marriage? Or why is, you know, living together wrong before marriage? And the truth of the matter is, it's because you're choosing to commit one part of your life sexually to someone, but you're holding back. If you're willing to go that far with a person, what the Bible says and what God says, he says, give everything to that person. Because that becomes a game of picking and choosing. I want to live with you and I want to sleep with you, but I don't want to provide for you financially. I want to sleep with you, but I don't want to be there for any emotional needs that you have. I want to sleep with you, but I don't want this part of your life. It's picking and choosing. There's no necessarily commitment that's all in. That's why, according to statistics in the world, divorce rates are higher amongst people who sleep and live together before they're married versus when they're married. Did you know that the lowest divorce rates in the world are pre, um, pre-set up marriages? You ever, isn't that interesting to think about? Because that's definitely not our culture. But what happens is people walk into marriage and they say, I'm all in. I'm all in on this person. I don't care what they're like. I don't care what happens. I'm going to love them and I'm for them. You know who has the highest divorce rates? You get to choose whoever you want and however you want. Our society and our culture. Why? Because it's a matter of picking and choosing. See, when it comes to sexuality, that wasn't something that was meant to be picked and choosed out of a person. In fact, it's a picture of the Lord that God doesn't want to give us a part of his love and then hold back others. God doesn't love certain parts about us and then hold back on others. God is fully committed to us in every way and gives us everything together. And it's the same way with our sexuality that ultimately total contentment is found in total commitment. Amen? Amen? See, and that gives a context that if it's a matter of full commitment to one another then it gives a context for what it's not. And this is something that I often talk about with students. Sexual immorality and sin is anything below God's plan for sex, or it could be taking certain parts of it and saying, I want this, but I don't want this. That's why choosing to sleep with someone but not choosing to commit your entire life to them ultimately becomes an act of brokenness. And that's where the brokenness begins to make its way into our lives. And this is how. What is adultery? Adultery is having a sexual relationship with someone outside of marriage. And it's saying that, well, I want to sleep with this person, but I don't want to commit my life like I did to this other person. Well, what's wrong with lusting? 
Well, lusting is looking at a person and fantasizing about them, kind of dwelling on what you might do sexually to them, but not committing your entire life to them and your well-being and lifting them up like God intended. What's wrong with pornography? It's watching a video or looking at pictures of something of someone and having a sexual fantasy, but then saying, but you don't want to know any part of them outside of that video or that photo. It's picking and choosing. It's saying, God, I want this, but I don't want that. In fact, the word lust literally is shown in the story of the fall because God made this beautiful garden that was meant for perfect contentment in their lives. And he said, you can enjoy everything with me. I have one rule. Don't eat of that tree of good and evil. And of course, what do humans do? They go, oh, well, I have all this, but why don't I have that? Why don't I have that? And then they go and eat of it and they lose it all. See, lust is wanting more than what God intended for you. That's why... When it comes to sexual immorality, it's saying that, well, I don't want this. I want more than what God intended for me. And when that happens, it throws off the entire goodness of what God intended in the first place. Total contentment is only found in total commitment. And as amazing and as powerfully great it can be in the right context, sexuality can be just as hurtful when it's outside the context, whether we intend it or not. In fact... I think one of the hardest parts of my job, and leaders can speak around the room, is just hearing some of the heartbreaking stories of students and decisions and the, the consequences and the, the echoing and the ripple effects of decisions that they made that God never wanted for them. Not that God isn't able to walk that back, but God doesn't want us to get hurt. Amen? You know that God doesn't want you to be sexually broken. God isn't going, aha, I showed you, I told you. You think God's sitting in heaven? God is sitting crying because he wants so much for us in heaven. So a matter of sexual brokenness is not something funny to God or something arrogant to him. But in fact, it's something that's heartbreaking just as much as it is for us. God doesn't want us to live in hurt, pain, sexual sin, brokenness, adultery, pornography, addiction, abusing and hurting one another, constant lust and taking advantage of one another. God is someone who wants us to enjoy our sexuality fully. And he wants to do that now. And God wants to build towards that. And so once again, it's no matter where you find yourself in the story, that God is someone that wants to enter into your sexuality and teach you and grow you and heal you in that. Amen? Now, in order to do that, I want to talk about one more thing the rest of this morning. Just one more theme. And I think it starts by addressing a major theme that we actually all struggle with in this room, whether it's with our sexuality or whether it's with other things in this room. It's one word, shame. I want you to say that with me, shame. Say it one more time, shame. Shame is something that's mentioned in the Bible and also mentioned in this passage. Covenant Eyes, which um, works with a lot of families um, with pornography addictions, actually defined it really well. It says that shame is feeling bad about who you are. Now, guilt is an awareness of failure against a standard, and shame is a sense of failure before the eyes of someone. Guilt is about disobedience against a law or a code, but shame is how you perceive others see you or how you perceive yourself. The difference between shame and messing up and guilt, guilt and messing up and conviction is this, I made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. 
there's something wrong with me personally and my identity versus I make mistakes and I can make them right. See, shame is something that enters into the picture, especially when it comes to sexuality. And it's one of the many reasons why people can't take it serious. It's one of the many reasons why some people will try to back off of it or not take it serious and say, ha ha, you know, I, that's really funny. But deep down, there's serious brokenness that God wants to heal. Shame is recognizing that you're hurting and you don't want to tell anyone. Shame is thinking that there's something wrong with you that no one else would understand in the room. And it has such a major effect. Back to the animal and angel theology, maybe you're someone who has gone into whatever you want when it comes to sexuality and you're hurt and you're broken and you've made mistakes and you look around this room and you go, if they knew what I did or what I've looked at or what I thought, they would hate me, they would judge me. That's shame at work right there. That's shame that's holding you back from stepping out and finding the healing. You know that God forgives you and loves you right now no matter what mistake you've made in your life up to this point, and that God has grace over you, and that God is just delighted as he is in you. In fact, the word says that when you come to Jesus, it's not that you're just forgiven. It's like you're a virgin. You're pure in the eyes of him because of what Jesus has done for you. But can you see how shame would hold you back by your own past by saying, you know what, I've engaged in these things, or I'm currently struggling with these things, and no one could ever love me, and I don't want to ever ask for help because I don't want anybody to know who I am. See, the other side of it when it comes to angel theology is just as shameful. I'm ashamed I even have a sexuality. I'm ashamed that I even have to address this. I'm ashamed when I feel something sexual or if I have attraction to someone that I think God is mad at me and I want to hide from him. You know, it's funny because what it says in verse 25 here is that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt, say it with me, no shame. They felt no shame whatsoever. Did you know that in God's plan for sexuality, there is no shame whatsoever in it? Amen. There's no room for shame. There's no room for brokenness or holding back. In fact, you have a picture of two people that are standing before each other completely naked, nothing hidden between them. This is who I am. There's nothing left. And that's a picture of the overall relationship that you have with another person. This is who I am. I'm not going to hide anything back from you. I'm not going to try and hide in the bushes or clothe myself and hide things from you. But this is who I am and saying, yes, I love you. And yes, I'm going to serve my entire life to you. That's what God's plan for sex looks like. But once you see sin enter the picture, you look at the immediate reaction, which, can I, can I ask you guys a question? That when sin entered the picture, don't you think the first reaction of humanity might tell a lot of how much they've changed because of sin? Amen? Amen? Maybe so. What you see happen after they ate the tree from the tree of good and evil is immediately they go and they hide in a bush. And they realize that they're naked. And when God asks where they're at, what he ends up saying is this. He says, Natalie, can you put up that verse? It says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hit. Natalie, can you put that up? Um, that's all right. I'm going to just reread it one more time. It says, I heard you in the garden, and I was, I was afraid because I was naked. Wait a minute, a second ago, they were naked and they felt no shame before one another. So what changed in it? Also, there was nothing hidden and all of a sudden they hid. 
You want to know why? Because the minute that sin enters into the picture, so does shame. Shame is something that drives us into hiding from the very God who wants to be in relationship with us. So no matter where you find yourself, that it's a matter of shame. It's a matter of stepping up to the plate and saying, I'm ashamed of things in my life. You could be ashamed of sin. And even if you're not sinning, shame can still have a hold on you from keeping you from going to God. Maybe you're ashamed that you have to admit that you're wrong about something. Maybe shame is holding you back from admitting that you need help and you need understanding in your life or that you're not always right when it comes to the things of the Lord or when it comes to walking out your sexuality. I think the best way to describe shame when it comes to sexuality is this. God is someone who equates himself as a doctor. We looked at that last week where Jesus says it's not the healthy that need a doctor. Jesus says he's a physician and he's a doctor for us, for our lives. Now think of sin being a disease that you have. Shame keeps you from going to the doctor because you're too scared to tell the doctor that you're sick. Yet you remain at home and you continue to just deteriorate. You continue to get more sick when really the answer is just going to the doctor, listening to them, taking the medication that they give you, and allowing yourself to be healed. Now look at that in your own story, in your own sexuality, that often shame about that can keep us from going to the very one who has the answers of redemption for our lives. What are you holding back from the Lord? What do you need to come to him in? Ultimately, it's this, that because of shame, it drives us into a place of hiding from God and that no matter where you find yourself, that you got to come out of the bushes. you got to say, Lord, I'm right here. You can't deflect it from anything or to anyone else, but you got to say, Lord, I need your help in this area of my life. Lord, I need you to teach me in this area of my life. No matter where you find yourself, there is no sin that makes anyone better or worse than anyone. We're all equal. We're all equally loved by the Lord that's around us.